What? When who took all the questions? Gotcha. I see. Can I get a volunteer on this side over here? What? Oh, there you go. Got it. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Or we can just drink some coffee. That's cool, too. Nope, Greg Sweet. Is the point that Luke wants us to get from this uh, unfortunate anecdote of uh, Peter that that we need to take Jesus's exhortation seriously to be praying for being prepared uh, and to pray for God's help in meeting all of the things that Satan's going to throw our way? Yes, I, I think that's absolutely... I think there's a couple of things he wants us to see in this. One is Jesus being in complete and total control. He knows what's going on. He, he's not surprised by any of this. He calls it you know, a mile away. But then, yeah, I think coming out of the garden, we are to connect Jesus' utter faithfulness with his time wrestling in prayer, and we're to connect the failure of Peter and the apostles with their... The sequential stacking up of first who's greatest to... Um, boasting, I'll never deny you, to falling asleep. Yeah, at every step, they're not availing themselves of the means of grace and help so that when the trial comes, it just knocks them over. So absolutely, I think Luke wants us to connect those dots. He's led a trail of breadcrumbs. Like, why would he do this? Well, we know, we've seen the pathway of why he would do this. And so I, I absolutely believe that in part we're to learn so we don't, you know, I don't want to weep bitterly, do you? Well, here's some things to avoid doing to, to not do that. It's not in a vacuum that Peter falls on his face. Absolutely. And behind you, Carol wants to add to that. I just think of um, you know, how temperament comes into play when you give in to temptation, especially when it's to be timid and, and fall back and you know, chicken out like he did. But I, I don't think of that as being Peter's temperament at all. I mean, it wasn't very long before he just pulled out a sword and and whacked somebody's ear off, you know. And you got any comment on that? I mean... Uh... Well, people have tried to psychoanalyze Peter, and, and I've tried to stay somewhat away from that. Luke doesn't... Well, so the other gospel, I think it's Matthew, gives us that it's Peter who lops off the high priest's ear. Luke doesn't specify... So again, I'm trying to, what does Luke want us to get from this? So I, Luke doesn't even give us that was Peter. And so I try not to bring that in because I'm try, what I'm trying to do is, okay, what is the story Luke's telling? What is the details he wants us to focus on? It's entirely possible that Peter's, um, you almost call him bipolar today, in that he's all excited and zealous. And then when our Lord puts the gabosh on it, no, put the sword away, you know, that sort of, Counter swings back the other way into almost sort of, oh, what? You know, and, and, and he, I was amazed. He's forgotten what Jesus said to him. He's forgotten about Satan's tempted, demanded to tempt you. He's forgotten you're going to deny me. He's forgotten all of that. So I think Peter's just kind of rocked and reeling with what's happening with his Lord. Even though Jesus has repeatedly told this the most recent time, they couldn't understand. It was hidden from them. Right, So even though he's openly said, I'm, I'm going to go get betrayed and beaten and mistreated and killed in Jerusalem, Peter is not ready for this. And so when it first happens, he's ready to go down swinging. But when Jesus put, put that away and Jesus lets it happen, tells him, allow this to happen, yeah, Peter's completely unready for that. And I, I would suspect he's just sort of crestfallen. And, it's and definitely the attack of Satan because yeah. um, Jesus said Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. So, I mean, Satan obviously really attacked him at that point when he's yeah. sitting around that fire. So, yeah. Yeah. Greg? I suspect it is also an encouragement to us uh, this episode uh, we, we know that at, at some point Peter is considered the rock on which Christ is going to uh, raise his church. 
Well, Peter's not looking like much of a rock. He's not rocky here. here. And so, pebble. And so um, it is, it's quite normal for every one of us sitting in this room to think of ourselves as, well, I couldn't do that. Well, I, I, I couldn't represent the Lord in this case. It's just me after all. That should be Jeremy or that should be somebody else. Right. Well, Peter was the rock and we see where he came from or, or what his insides were like. Mm-hmm. So he's just us uh, yeah. being faithful. But no, absolutely. Although the, the other piece is the Holy Spirit. Peter's an absolutely changed man after he receives the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is going to tell him, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And the Peter who shows up in Acts 2 and thereon is not look like this guy at all. So much so that the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees marvel. These are untaught men, but they perceived that they had spent time with Jesus. I mean, there's this great little Lucan you know, description. That, and that's part of what I... What I was trying to balance in the message is, on the one hand, absolutely, Peter's failures give us hope. If you make too much of that, then it's, oh, it's not a big deal that you totally screwed up. It's okay. I mean, after all, Peter did. Well, Peter goes out and he weeps seriously, and Peter comes back a changed man. So there's, there's absolute hope for, for us if we will repent and change. But on the other hand, Jesus' warnings are pretty severe for, to us if we don't. If we just, yeah, every time for trials come up, I just deny Jesus. So, oops, just, just my temperament. Like, you, you might be headed for some trouble. Uh, so Peter does give that hope, but we also get through the sequel of Luke, the absolute change of Peter. Even though he still makes mistakes, Paul has to rebuke him later. It's not as though, okay, after Acts 2, Peter gets everything right. Paul in Galatians reports how he had to call him out on being a hypocrite. So Peter's still going to goof, but he's a changed and changing person. And so, yeah, if we're changed and changing people, take great hope and comfort that Peter royally, royally messes up here. Well, it goes without saying we have that same Holy Spirit that Peter was given that yep. changed him. Uh, no, and that's, that's what I'm saying. We, yeah, Christians are going to sin, and people, Christians are going to make horrible mistakes. Christians also should be making radical repentance and change and growth as well with it. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the ditch on one side is to hold up Jesus' statement so absolutely. I mean, I think we've mentioned this earlier in, the, uh, in our discussions in ABF, but the earliest church division came up um, over the, what to do with those people who denied Christ during persecution. And there was a side, a sect, because of course now that persecution's gone, they say they're very, very sorry, and we just, oh, we repent. And after all, Peter denied the Lord, and he was restored. And you know, the people that had lost loved ones, the people that had been tortured in prison for the sake of Christ, were a little dubious at their newfound contrition. And the, that's where penance came from. And the Catholic Church um, thing of penance came from that because the, in the earliest church, they concluded splitting the church over the matter was too significant. And there are people, I mean, you get it, you're refusing. I'm not going to worship alongside of those sellouts. They offered incense to Caesar. They got preferential treatment from the Romans. Two of my kids died in jail. You know, I mean, I'm not worshiping next to the Joneses. There's no way. If they're showing up to church, we're not. You know, it's the type of mentality. And the logic was, since there would be no further persecution after Constantine, or at least so it was believed, that there was no way for them to show the genuineness of their repentance. Because then, the, so when they bring up Peter, they say yes, but Peter then did go on to persevere in in persecution. You read about it in Acts. So sure, if these people had another persecution and they were to be faithful, we'd take them seriously, the other side said. And so what they came up with was, okay, we're going to come up with some painful things to do since they can't go and persevere in a persecution, since there aren't any more persecutions. So we're going to give them some things to do. And once they've done these works of satisfaction, then they can be readministered back into the body because then we'll know they're serious. That's, that's the origin of penance. Um, to which we need to be somewhat sympathetic for, even though that's not the right answer. The right answer is the Lord's not mocked. Love hopes all things and believes all things. Yes, it looks a little convenient that the Joneses are now sorrowful, but hey, we're going to, I mean, we'll talk to them. We'll try to make sure you're, are you guys for real. But yeah, at the end of the day, God's going to judge. I can't read your heart. 
You know, um, no, and even today there are some sins people commit where the works of repentance are obvious. You know, if you've stolen money, go pay it back. If you've told a lie, go confess it, make it right. What are the works of repentance for somebody who's, you know, proud? It's not as clear. You know, so when you, when you confront somebody or somebody's confessing that, how do you, how do you measure their repentance? Some, some sins, the measurement is much more direct and simple. You know, okay, you cheated on your wife, you've repented, you confessed, have you, stu- have you are you still doing that? No, I'm not doing that anymore. Okay, great, we've seen a clear change in pattern and behavior, but it's, it's not as easy with some, with some of those things. <clears throat> so here we've got, um, in the early church, this, this statement of you can't deny Christ. In fact, in 2 Timothy, that's one of the uh, early doctrinal statements that they, that they put together. If we, um, if, we, if we live with him, we'll reign with him. If we, oh dear, I'm bungling it, hold on. But no, they, they held on to this truth about confessing Christ very seriously. Those trustworthy statements in the, in the pastoral epistles are indications of early doctrinal statements or early uh, memory statements of doctrine, things that the early church thought necessary to hold on to tightly. And the one that they got here is, if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So they took Jesus' statements in Luke seriously. You better hold on to that and remember that. Even while we've got Peter as an exception. You know, so that's, I'm rambling and I'm not even sure where I went from. One, one of the allures, I'm sure, also of penance is we'd, if we adopted it here, we'd have money to pave the parking lot in no time at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, penance has its appeal because, you know, you can just tell me what I need to do, and I'm, I'm good, you know. Um, tell, me, tell me what I need to get it done. I got a quantifiable list. Go do it. Check. We're good. Um, it, 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 like I said, it, it, I get the logic of it. It's... And I'm sympathetic to the scenario for its creation, but you know, you go 1,500, 1,600 years later, and you see the terrible fruit that's born when that's full grown. You're like, that was not the right answer. <laughs> that is not the right answer. Um, who's next? I have a question. Oh, Wanda. Um, from what I remember in reading the Gospels, was John the only disciple and the women that were at the crucifixion? I believe so. Okay. The only one we know of, because Jesus speaks to, to John and yeah. with Mary there, and he says, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And so we know, yeah, John's there. John also may have had some connections with people. As you're trying to track him through the Gospels, it's, he doesn't like to call himself John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it's a lot of it's kind of process of elimination stuff. It's just like Mark doesn't name himself, but Mark tells us that when Jesus is arrested, one of them ran away naked. And that's almost certainly John Mark. Um, you know, and he's not trying to cover up his shame. He's like, I ran like a, like a little coward, mm-hmm. and someone grabs my, and you're naked because someone's trying to grab you. And you slip out of your cloak and just keep running, you know. Um, but so some of it's trying to figure out. So is it conceivable other disciples were there? Yes. The only one we know of who was at the crucifixion is John, to my knowledge. Yeah. So can you infer they all kind of denied Christ then? Oh, sure. And the other gospels go out of the way and make the connection with Zechariah. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. They scatter. Now, Peter, because he makes the most overt positive. I mean, again, the other Gospels even give you more detail. Even if all these, Lord, were to deny you, I will stay faithful. I mean, and Luke doesn't add that detail in, but um, Peter really is kind of like, Lord, the rest of these guys, they might, I mean, I could concede that, that's conceivable, but it's not me. So Peter has the most absolute overt denial. But yeah, all of them are scampering and running and hiding and fleeing, and they're not you know, sticking together. I can't wait till Sunday. It's almost here. I mean, they're just, they're completely bewildered. Absolutely. Uh, Peter here seems to me demonstrates how we in our weakness uh, act in the moment, um, the short-sightedness, whereas Jesus, probably through his prayer, he really 
knows the long term. I mean, he he's proactive. Mm. We're reactive. Mm. He acts in the long term. Uh, we act in the short term. So we act in the moment. And Jesus is profoundly different. And I guess the point you've made over the weeks is that it's because of the prayer. Yeah. Yeah, he, as early as chapter 11, when they taught them to pray, pray, lead us not. I mean, so this is not some new thing. Okay, guys, they had a new thing for you to start praying. He told them as early as chapter 11, when you pray, one of the things you ought to pray for is, God, lead me not into temptation. Then he warns them, then he warns them, then he warns them. And they, yeah, and are, you know, I, I was free, absolutely my weakest spiritual discipline is prolonged prayer. Lots of little peppered prayers here and there, but, you know, one of the hardest things I ever do, I had a class in seminary where the homework was simply this, pray an hour uninterrupted every day, five days a week. That was easily the most difficult homework. Like, I, I got to the moment I had to go on prayer walks because I get distracted. You get, you, you'd get deep into prayer, and then you'd think of something, and then you'd look at your watch, and it's been three minutes. Like, surely that must have been 45 minutes, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, but you, you read any church history or Christian biographies, and, and the people who were, who were used powerfully by God have a consistent pattern of a prayer life. Um, Martin Luther famously... Um, once said, I have so much to do today, I must get up and spend an extra two hours in prayer. It's not the way we tend to think. We think, I've got so much to do today, I need some extra sleep. And he's thinking, I have such a busy day, I'm going to need at least another hour or two in prayer to get ready for it. <laughs> but there's a reason God uses Martin Luther to start a reformation. And, you know, <laughs> so... Absolutely. Abs- I don't think Luke's gospel, we could get too much of an importance out of prayer, and especially as it's connected to the pivotal scenes of Jesus' life and ministry. It's Jesus is seen in prayer just before the Holy Spirit comes down and he's baptized. Jesus is praying all night before he picks the 12, and Jesus is um, in prayer in the garden before the crucifixion and the arrest. And he goes up on the mountain to pray when he, the Father comes down. And, and so pivotal moments in Jesus' life and ministry in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is bathed in prayer throughout them. And whenever these big moments take place, it's always Jesus deep in prayer in the context. So yeah, I think Luke wants us to get, Luke wants me to get, pray more, pray more fervently. Absolutely. Dave Kingery in the back. I I just thought it was really interesting when you mentioned as uh, the the soldiers were mocking Jesus for being a prophet, yet all that prophecy, uh, I mean, not just one prophecy, but a oh. whole bunch of prophecies were being fulfilled on, I mean, hidden in plain sight for those guys to see if they really wanted to see them. That, that was the coolest thing this week, studying it, because, what, no, that, th- thank you. I'm glad that that was, that was, uh, it was, it was cool to see that as well, because I'm looking at it going, okay, Luke, what are you doing? And the first thing that, that messed, not messed me, what confused me, is Luke has him go to the high priest's house, and then as I'm reading, but, but he, he, he never interacts with, Luke has no record of Jesus interacting with the high priest. So why tell us you're taking him there? And then they sort of leave him there for a bit, and Peter does something, and Jesus gets beaten, and Jesus looks at Peter, and then they haul him off someplace else. But you never told us what happened with the high priest. you know. And so I thought, that was odd. Why, is, why does he do that? And then as I realized that the next time they move him is in 66, so Jesus getting mocked part of this. So you, you have the camera, the plot move forward. He gets taken to the high priest. Luke doesn't bother to tell us what happens with Jesus and the high priest. Other gospel writers tell us that. What does Luke tell us? It's in the context of being at the high priest's place, that Peter denies Jesus, and that Jesus is beaten and mocked as a prophet. Then it's like, oh, and yet we're seeing Jesus here. I just, yeah, I mean, for the reader, there's just such delicious irony. They're making fun of him about being a prophet while he is 
Fulfilling, yeah, exactly. And that's sort of, okay, Luke wants us to see that. And it's, again, another one of those Jesus in control. Jesus looks to be on the ropes. Jesus really is right where he needs to be. Um, he's not bothered by the fact that they're making fun of him, that he's a prophet. He's fulfilling his own prophecy and calling Peter to repentance with a look while they're doing that. It was just, just boom. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> prophecy is being fulfilled in front of them while they mock him about it. Yeah, that and so, go. Even the prophecy of Peter alone is, is just astounding because there, there are so many parts of that prophecy. It was the cock crowing in conjunction with him, with his denial. Right. He denied him three times, not two, four, right. or whatever. Right. So right. that was specific. The timing was specific. Yeah. And... Uh, the, the, there's a couple more, I think, in there that I can't think of right right now. Um, so, and in, in, in no prophet, uh, false prophet, has ever been able, and no religion, right. nothing has been able to even come close to that. They they make these these uh, these. Uh, um, I know what I'm want to say, but my mind can't. Uh, Big prophecies. Right, right. That, that, that Jesus' can... prophecies are not. Uh, there will be a man who will lose a hammer, and yes. someone else will hurt their foot. Yeah. And it's, no, it's, it's, it's dead on the money, specific, um, nails it, verifiable or falsifiable prophecy. I mean, it's clear as day. Either you know what you're talking about, this stuff happens. Numerous specifics, yeah. not generalities, yeah. specifics. Yes. Yeah, no, this being exactly one of them. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. What next? Candy Jackson. Um, on 63 and through 65, was that happening at the exact same time when Peter was denying? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, the way I translated 63, now the men who were holding him were mocking him. And I, and, and I take that to mean like this is what they were doing during this time period, during the hours that Jesus was here. This is what the, they were doing. So I don't think it's... Peter betrays Jesus, Jesus looks at them, and then they begin to do these things. Because Peter's betrayal takes place over at least an hour, because there's an hour in between two and three, right? Um, so I would take that to be 63 to 65. This is the type of stuff that was happening during that whole time period. Could it be when they ask him, who struck you? Could that be when he looked at Peter? Could be. <laughs> That'd be adding some extra, some extra sting to it. Um, who struck you? You did. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Any other questions? Doug wants to weigh in. You, you know how you've said things strike you differently different times you hear the story, but I don't think in previous accounts where I've gone through this, I've conceptualized the close proximity here. I don't think I've ever quite realized how close Jesus was to this fire, and I don't think I've caught the significance of the look before. Mm. Well, that's, that's one of the things that I find really... Um, I mean, there's a couple of ways you can study these things. My old pastor, John MacArthur, he likes to harmonize. And the advantage of harmonizing is you get all the details that all the gospel writers bring in. And so he'll bring in every, if, we're, if he was to study this passage, he'd take everything Matthew and Mark and John have to add and bring it in. That's great. I got no objection to that. But I think you miss some of the things, you put, the subtlety, the subtle nuance that Luke highlights when you strip away some of the extra data. So what does Luke draw our attention to? He draws our attention to a look. And then Peter remembers. And so like, okay, the look is what causes... So that's a couple of things for me. Peter's doing all this because he forgot. And Jesus is actually loving him, even though that look, I'm sure, stung. 
It's not an I told you so, ha, huh, who's right? It's, it's the final act of shepherding. Peter needs to be struck by that look so that his heart will break and he'll repent. And like, oh, now you added in all the data from everything else, I probably would have missed that thread. But I think that's where Luke's going. So, so one of the things that I find I enjoy about just trying to study this account through Luke and Luke alone, if we can, is what's Luke pointing out. And there are all sorts of things, aha moments for me in my own study, because I'm so familiar with it as a conglomerate account of all the Gospels that Luke, well, Luke doesn't tell us that was Peter. Huh, okay. So I got to not factor that in as a huge thing. I mean, it'd be easy to say, of course, Peter's feeling nervous. He's the guy who cut off his ear. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in Luke's telling, that's not, Luke doesn't think that's worthy of him carrying that point. So whatever Luke's trying to accomplish doesn't need me to know that. So we're moving it on. But yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing how much detail is here when we slow down and even things we know and familiar with, and you go through it a fourth, fifth, sixth time, like, oh, okay, wow. Yeah, there's, as best as we can reconstruct it, there's a courtyard actually between two households. The high priest, I mentioned this, um, I mentioned this in the message, that as we reconstruct it from the Gospels, Jesus has three Jewish trials or tribunals and then three Roman. And so John 19 has him first go um, to, is it Annas? I think it's Annas, um, who lived across the same courtyard, the high priest and his father-in-law, um, or son-in-law, I forget which one is it. But yeah, in John 19, you have, no, no, 18, John 18. Um, okay, eighteen twelve. so the band of soldiers and their captain, um, the officers and the Jews arrested him and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, which is, by the way, an indication that John knows that Luke and Mark have him start with the high priest. Um, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So he knows, so even John's first is, he know, yeah, yeah, I know the other Gospels have him start there, but no, first. He, and the reason why I can go to him first is they shared a household. So there's this household with a courtyard in between them, and so they can move him from one house to the other, and they can, he can meet with Annas first, and then go across to Caiaphas, the high priest, and then they're going to court him off to the Sanhedrin, because according to Jewish extra-biblical law, trials have to take place in daylight, so all this nighttime stuff's illegal anyway, so they're at least going to have one tribunal, they're going to wait till it's dawn, and they're going to bring him before the council, which is where we're going next. And the council is what's going to condemn him, even though he gets condemned every step of the way. Then he goes to Pontius Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate, then they crucify him. So those are his six stops on the way of trial. Um, and so, yeah, John gives us the first one. And then Luke is aware of the high priest. He, doesn't, he isn't interested in what Jesus has to say to Caiaphas. We'll pick up what Jesus is actually talking before the council of the Sanhedrin. Um, but yes, as we try to reconstruct what's going on, this is a long night. <laughs> this is a long night. And uh, for whatever reason, Luke's more interested in what's taking place outside in the courtyard as Jesus is waiting, presumably, for an audience with one or the other. But yeah, it, it's, this is close. I mean, he can look over and make eye contact. This isn't, this isn't uh, yards and, and miles away or anything by any stretch. Okay. Okay, so if what was happening with Jesus and what was happening with Peter were happening at similar times, um, and Jesus was blindfolded during part of this portion, how was he able to look at Peter? Sure. Um, so, great question. Go to uh, 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him, or they were blindfolding him. I take this as something they were doing off and on. They were, what typified the two or three hours this took place, they were mocking him, they were beating him. Sometimes they'd blindfold him, say, prophesy who hit me, who hit you. At other times, they'd take it off, presumably. This is what they were doing. So I don't take it as the entire time he's blindfolded. 
Now, one of the ways, because he, he finishes it by saying, and they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So one of the ways they'd mock and blaspheme him is they'd put a blindfold on, they'd strike him and they'd say, prophesy, who hit you? Which is the only one Luke draws our attention to. But he makes it clear, oh, they, they were creative. They had a lot of other ways of mocking him, which didn't necessarily involve him having a blindfold on. But it does probably candy erode the notion that when they said who struck you, he looked at Peter, because you can't make eye contact with the... With the it's, he looked at... See, yeah. Well, and, and the, the Greek notion, and the notion of that world is the eye is something that reaches out and touches. So even though scientifically we understand that light goes in, we even in our English language will say something you rest your gaze upon. All of that's coming from a viewpoint of the eye as something that reaches out and interacts. So Jesus looking at Peter, he can't look at Peter if Peter's not there to be seen. Um, It doesn't demand the eye contact, although the eye contact explains Peter's sudden remembering and remorse. But you can't be looking at Peter with a blindfold on. Not, not in that point of view. I mean, it's, it's not, the Greek would not allow for, he was looking in Peter's direction, or his face was towards Peter. He's looking at Peter. He turns and looks at Peter, which means he has to be able to see Peter in some way or sense. Um, good, does that, that answer your question? That work? Good question. Oh, Kevin Wank. I don't know why, but whoa, um, this this actually I tried to correlate this to what we deal with every day, and uh, I don't. This just struck me when you explained it that way, as Jesus that look that Jesus gave Peter. That I I kind of feel like that's what he does to us when we feel convicted, because. I've never thought of it that way, but that's Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, shepherding us. And when you don't have that conviction, that's when you need to be afraid. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, turn to, turn to 2 Corinthians 7. I had this in the notes. We never went there because Mike pointed out I ended five minutes early again. He said that people are going to stop praying for me to get better, um, which I thought was kind of mean-spirited of him. But. Anyway, uh, but, but no, we, we, we so often equate things that make people sorrow, sorrowful with bad, um, and yet Peter's bitter tears are a necessary step to Peter restored, filled with joy. And Paul wrestles with the same struggle. I mean, anytime we as parents or as, as husbands or wives or cor- correct people, there's, we don't enjoy their sorrow, the bitterness. But we do it for what comes beyond that. And so the Apostle Paul recognizes this exact same struggle. He wrote them a letter in between First and Second Corinthians, which is referred to by people as his harsh letter. Some people have tried to suggest it's First Corinthians, but I don't think that works. Regardless, he references a harsh letter that he wrote to them. So he says in verse 8 of chapter 7, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So Paul's saying, look, I I took no pleasure in making you guys feel bad, but I don't regret it, even though I did regret it. I don't regret it because you didn't just stop at feeling bad. You pressed on through to repentance, and so I'm happy, you know. Um, And so, yeah, that's Jesus' look is bringing Peter. It's sorrowful. It stings. Jesus is not a sadist. He's doing it, ultimately, just like Paul here, to press on through to the other side. Um, he goes on to say, As it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so, yeah, we oftentimes avoid dealing with sin or confronting other people with sin because that middle step, it's, it's going to sting. They're going to feel bad. But Paul says, I took no pleasure in saying some of the things I had to say to you, but I don't regret it because you pressed through that grief into repentance, which there is no regret for. And you know, we do the same thing with our kids. I don't enjoy disciplining my kids, the act itself, 
but I enjoy the, the character and the fruit that that bears, right, you know, um, long term. Um, so it's the, same, yeah, it's the same type of thing. But, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was another aha thing when I'm realizing Jesus right here is shepherding Peter. He's still, he's, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus is now taking steps to make sure his faith doesn't fail, that he will be restored. That's it's another beautiful picture of Jesus loving the disciples to the end. Even as he's, am I rambling off of what you were saying, or, or are we talking somewhat in the same stuff? Okay, cool. I'm like I said, I'm still pretty discombobulated. So you could all pray for my combobulation. That would be much appreciated. Um, okay. Uh, any other thoughts or questions? Or oh, Lois and then Renee. Um, in John, it says that um, Peter was Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Probably and, John. And then the other three Gospels don't say that. It said the other disciple was known to the high priest and was in with him being questioned. It's just odd that was he in there and saw the betrayal of or the abuse of Jesus and yeah, we, we figure that's John, that John knew that Caiaphas or had some connection, so he was able to get in. It's almost certainly John, although John, again, doesn't feel comfortable naming himself. So John's able to move in and out while Peter's stuck out. So, and, and Jesus is apparently in and out as well, as even as they're moving him from one building to the other, and they're holding him in the courtyard at some point while they're, you know, Caiaphas is perhaps getting ready for the interview. I mean, it takes, you read his interview with Caiaphas, it's short. And yet Peter's out there for over an hour. And so presumably there's a fair amount of time for Jesus just to be held waiting while the soldiers are mocking him and, and, and beating him. But yeah, John John's gets access. And I think it's part of how John gets access into that first encounter with, with Annas. Um, which may even be part of the reason why the other gospel writers are even unaware of it. I mean, it probably happens so quickly that, you know, the big one was the high priest, but he meets with the high priest's father-in-law first before he meets with the high priest. But, yeah. Was, was Mark someone that, it says that he was known to the high priest. Was there, did he have some um, background or something that we would know why he would... To specifically have access? I, I don't know. I don't know if we know much of his parents. I mean, they're the sons of uh, John and John and James are the sons of thunder. Their mother comes and asks Jesus to give them positions at his right hand. I don't know if, I mean, I, I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of people have written pages with some theories. I just can't think textually where, what other connections you could make other than just somehow he knew them. Um, Anyone want to add to that? Jacob, you got anything? No, Jacob's shaking his head. Okay. Um, so you, we can rest. Mitchell? Okay, the, our resident <laughs> experts. There's, that settles it. The testimony of two or three is settled. Um, there's no further knowledge. Okay. Renee and Lucia. In passages... Um 63 through 65, something occurred to me that um, I reckon Christ knew who was beating him, and he could have said, but uh, the evil one does send mockers and um, kind of game players, and I was impressed at how Jesus stayed so focused. Mm. He was not caught up in that, and it was like a reminder to me not to get caught up in that, just to stay focused. Yeah, it was like, even what Doug was saying earlier, you keep your eye on a long view of what's going on, and you're not simply caught up in, who's this jerk telling me? I mean, it's, it's not in, maybe it is later in Luke, but where Jesus says, do you not think I could call on my father and he'd send a, a legion of angels? Like, come on. It's, he's not getting caught up in, oh yeah, well who says? You know, he, he's, no, he's, he's, he's dealing with much bigger, bigger issues than simply getting caught up in, in the uh, snotty, blasphemies of these soldiers um absolutely and we get but we'll get caught somebody you know somebody dissed me on facebook or something or somebody you know whatever they didn't like something i did and i'll get all types of fired up about it it's that great quote by spurgeon if somebody 
Oh man, I'm bungling that now. If you learn that somebody thinks ill of you, let that not bother you, for they could not possibly think ill enough of you, or something. I'm ruining it, but that's the basic notion. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and it reminds me of Proverbs, answer a fool according to his falling, you pretty much give him yeah. more power. So it's just a good reminder to me, because it is too easy to get angry and caught up in these little things that knock us off of our balance, right. where we should be. Right. Right. Well, and they're simply doing this to get a rise out of him, and they simply don't get a rise out of him. I mean, Jesus doesn't have a lot to say in his trials, but what he says is going to be decisive. We'll see that next week. Um, he's going to seal his fate by a claim to deity. Um, he's going to make a plain, simple, clear claim to deity, and they're going to be, okay, that's it. We're done. Hand him over to the Romans. Um, and and Luke, from Luke's telling, that's the decisive point. That's what they're going to hang their hats on. Um, to try to kill him. Okay. 13 minutes, people. 13 minutes. Sue Kern. How could they, uh, the ones that arrested Jesus, how could they overlook, like, Jesus healing the ear that was cut off. And didn't they fall back when he... When That's he John, in John's... In John, no, the, the, uh, this is where harmony is helpful. So let me, ask, let me ask you your first question. They're completely bogus and corrupt, and that's the point of Jesus saying, why are you coming out at night with clubs? They, what they're doing is saying, you know what you're doing is wrong. This is not about justice. This is not about the law. This is not about doing right. This is about giving an excuse to do what you want to do. You want to take me out, and so you've fabricated an excuse, and it's ridiculous. Jesus' whole point in saying, I've been in the temple every day. Why didn't you pick me up there? Why would you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? Well, because they're cowardly, self-condemned hypocrites, and he's pointing that out. So... Why did they not see? Because they weren't interested in truth. They weren't looking for the truth. They'd already made up their minds. Um, and so they, they simply had determined we need to do away with this guy. So him healing Malchus's ear was just one more thing to condemn them. Him speaking truth every day in the temple and refuting them was just one more thing to condemn them. But at a certain point, they were doing it not because they had any interest in truth or justice, but because they were angry enough, we want to take him out. That that's and, and Jesus is highlighting that fact. This is not, man, they really got confused and got the wrong guy <laughs> at all. The question about Jesus um, saying that is in, is in John 18. Um, let's turn there. See, that's the thing. We can harmonize the ABF. So there's some cool added details about the arrest. Um, so John 18... Um, starting in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these go. This was to fulfill the word that was spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck off the high priest's servants, no, struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so, working backwards from this, what Jesus is doing is guarding him. He's basically saying, in essence, who's your warrant for? Jesus of Nazareth. Which is, in effect, to say, then you need to leave my disciples alone. You've got no claim over them. Now, it's interesting when he, when he says, I am he, and they fall flat on their faces. There's a lot of discussion of what was going on there. I think the most likely is, um, in Greek, you would say, ego eimi, which is what the Greek text there is could be translated, I am he, or simply I am. 
um, the, the, the verb I, I am can contain within it the object he, it, it's a legitimate translation. But it seems far more likely that what Jesus actually does there is vocalize the divine name, which the Jews would respond to by falling on their faces. Um, so it, it would be a sort of a, a double entendre or a, we've come to arrest Jesus of Nazareth, I am. <laughs> you know, boom, falling on their faces. Um, it, it, that's, I think, the most likely explanation of what's going on. But it's certainly remarkable when the guy you're trying to arrest, everyone's falling down. I mean, if he wanted to escape, he could have, you know, right? I mean, while everyone's on their faces, he could just sort of walk off. They get up again. I am. There's fall down again. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's uh, it again shows the, the power and control of our Lord. Yeah, each of the gospel writers brings in details that are uh, remarkable and um, and highlight different aspects. John is most concerned with Jesus' deity and authority, and so he's highlighting the aspects most commonly that highlight Jesus' deity and authority. Luke is the gospel that's most emphasizing his humanity. That's why you get Jesus sweating like great drops of blood. Luke wants you to see this, this was a man. He wasn't only a man, but he was a man, and he lived as a man for men. Um, and so Luke emphasizes Jesus' growth and knowledge and wisdom and, le- and learning in, in Luke's gospel, which is a feature not in the others. But anyway. Good. Yes, Wanda, bring us home, Wanda. Well, I always thought they fell back involuntarily. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that the power of the words I am. Like the Holy Spirit knocked him down is kind of what I thought. Are you? It's possible that it's also possible that they're doing it out of their own tradition for hearing the divine name. We we don't know. John just tells us what he said and what they did, and then we're I believe left to try to figure out why. And so there's question about whether them falling down is supernatural force. Is it the power of Jesus saying the divine name that they're causing them to fall? Is it their mock reverence that's causing them to fall? I have, I'd have to study through John to give you a better answer. If someone wants to weigh in, they can. Zeb? No? Okay. Um, but it, it, that's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. All John tells us is what he said and what they did. Because if you didn't care that he had healing power to put that, I mean, you didn't see his deity there, then why, when he says, I am, would you, oh, okay, now we're going to show reverence? Well, because for the same reason that they, because they're hypocrites, they've got their rules, and they oh. stick to their rules. Okay. And so um, when you hear the divine name, you, you okay. keep the rules you came up with. I mean, as much as these are wicked, hypocritical men, they took really seriously the rules they came up with. They literally have boxes called phylacteries that have mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 6, 3 inscribed on them on their foreheads mm-hmm. because... They thought that's what God wanted them to do when he said, bind this in your foreheads. Yeah. But they, they took it seriously, man. You know? um, and so they took the wrong things seriously, but they did take seriously the stuff they took seriously. In, in Jewish circles today, if a pen is used to write the divine name, you have to then take that pen and set it aside and never use it again. So I was, I was listening to a podcast of a guy who grew up in an Orthodox Jewish school, and any piece of paper, you couldn't burn it. So if, if you ever wrote the divine name, the paper, the pen, they're all fastidiously set aside and they had a whole box for pieces of paper with the divine name on them that they could bury like once a year or something. I mean, so issues around those types of things, they took very, very seriously. So it's possible this is just, you know, they do. It's also equally possible the Holy Spirit's forcing them down. He's just mm-hmm. said, I am God. It, yeah, I, I would have to study through John to, to give you a better understanding of what I think the answer is. But Five minutes. Jacob Moore. All right. He doesn't disappoint. Well, um... I think in hearing you, thanks for your sermon this morning, appreciate it. Um, One of the things it reminded me of was just how weak we are without the power of God in us. And um, as Greg was alluding to earlier, um, 
you know, we're obviously not better than Peter. And if anything, you know, in some sense, we think he maybe is better than us. But this is, when I look, when I go from the end of Luke there into Acts, they really don't do anything uh, except they pick Matthias. And even that they don't do without casting lots. And so they go right from having Jesus shepherding them and guiding them and leading them to then when you start to see the power of the apostles as we like to think about it, it really is the, the they've been anointed by the Spirit and now they're able to do things that are amazing and, and wonderful. So on the one hand, I think <clears throat> um, it shows us how pathetic we are as people. Um, and on the other hand, it also helps me see, well, it's not about us. If we have the Spirit in us, we really are capable of great, amazing things to glorify and honor God with our lives. So there's no sense in which we can't do great and amazing things for God. So we have the strength to, to we do have, that. Well, yeah, let me see if this is what you're getting at. On the one hand, the passage you look at today is a perfect picture of what you and I are capable of if we're walking in the flesh in our own strength. Yet, because we have the Holy Spirit, everything we see Peter doing in his boldness and acts is completely open to us as well. That same spirit dwells within us. The same strength and boldness he gave Peter and acts he can give to us. So both extremes, in one sense, are on the table for us. Like, you want to walk in your own strength and your own flesh? You might end up looking like that. Yeah. But we don't have to wait 30 days in Jerusalem to get to the other side of that. We can repent and confess and be bold and courageous and the Spirit using us like He uses Him. Yeah, exactly. All righty. Yeah. I like that. Nothing even remotely controversial. I'm surprised. Can you believe that, Greg? No, he's, he's full of chagrin. Okay. Anybody? And last thing, anybody? Or I'll let you out two minutes early. God bless. Have a good Sunday. <laughs>